bitch, I just can't stop. Hey, put in that spooky boy bops. Hey there, welcome to Shoot the Flick, an official Paradoja podcast. I'm Frankie Spock. And I'm Scott Eisenberg. And we are a married couple who like to shoot the shit about movies. That we do, that we do. And this week, I'm showing Scott another spooky flick by the name of The Shining, released in 1980. Yeah, this is uh, one of those ones that I'm embarrassed that I've never seen. This movie is very unique in its atmosphere and tone. It, like Alien, also isn't a real, like, you know, jump scare oogie boogie type movie it's it's more eerie i would say than scary at least until the end maybe this movie i i kept telling frankie i was trying to find the words but this movie for a great deal of it just disorients you so overall would you say that you like the movie i did i did like the movie i have my one little nitpick that it's not even really a nitpick it's just because I know Jack Nicholson now and kind of how he is as an actor, it's kind of hard to buy him. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, I, I get what you're saying. I think Nicholson does a good job. Oh, His performance is really oh, well a- done. But knowing how his career kind of went from this movie, I mean, from... The word go, you pretty much see the crazy Jack, like, kind of bubbling underneath the surface. We'll get to it more in detail as we get to the plot. But the character of Jack Torrance, he's not just some, like, suburban Ned Flanders type dad that just walks into this hotel and suddenly turns into a different person. You meet this character and he's been through some shit and he's got some issues, and those issues are kind of slowly but surely just tearing him apart inside. And it's it's a gradual loss of your mental faculties. Oh, yeah, I definitely understand that. It's just sometimes because you know how Jack is and how he gets crazy, everything from this to anger management to Batman, that's who he is. He's like this one-second calm the next second i'm a lunatic and it's kind of hard to buy that gradual insanity with jack because you know it's already coming right i hear what you're saying so this film is as we mentioned a, a classic horror film probably one of the best horror films of all time when it first came out in theaters, it got some mixed reviews. Uh, it even got a couple Razzie nominations. We're going to talk about that. Really? Yep. Oh, Jesus. Uh, <laughs> now it's gotten so much love and acclaim. It's number 63 on the IMDb top movie list. It was inducted into the National Film Registry in 2018. But despite the a claim that it's gotten over time the author of its source material wasn't necessarily very happy with the film uh this film is based on a stephen king book of the same name published in 1977 
Stephen King was famously unhappy with the adaptation. So much so that, let's see, 17 years after this movie came out, he produced and wrote a miniseries, which didn't do well, I don't think. No, it's gotten very poor reviews over a great deal of time. Yeah, and like there are definite differences between the book and the film. However, the film is pretty awesome. And I have read the book. The book's good too, but at points it does fall victim to what I think is the main Stephen King problem in a lot of his books, which is that he kind of just rambles on sometimes about nonsense. (laughs) And that really doesn't have a whole lot to do with what's going on. And then somehow he'll get back on track and it'll be fine. And I mean, this movie, it is slow, but it's not, in my opinion, slow in a bad way. It's, it takes its time. I honestly think the title cards really helped this movie. Hmm. Explain. Okay, so they're randomly title cards that kind of show up that kind of judge your time so that you can kind of gain a sense of what's going on and how much time has gone by. But I think that they're jarring enough that it never it never lets you settle. That's true. I didn't think about it that way. So this film was directed by Stanley Kubrick. He's directed many things, obviously a a very infamous director. Uh, He's directed Dr. Strangelove, 2001, A Space Odyssey, Clockwork Orange. It was also co-written by Kubrick, along with a Miss Diane Johnson, who is a novelist. This is her only screenwriting credit. Apparently, Kubrick really liked one of her books, so he asked her to co-write the the screenplay with him only after however Stephen King gave him a script and Kubrick was like no (laughs) so well uh, (laughs) can you blame him a little bit of tension have you seen Maximum Overdrive you can we made you we made Uh, was that written by Stephen King? Yes. Like the, the I, screenplay? I think, he, I think he wrote it, and I think he directed it, to be oh, honest. Oh, no. I did also want to mention the score for this film is really like its own character. Yes. It's so essential to the tone of the film. Just from the opening credit scene, these rolling hills and these big snowy mountains and get the little car driving along and the score just immediately lets you know where you're at and it's I just love it so much yeah it definitely sets you up very well originally Mr. John Williams was going to do the score for this film which I think would have been crazy if you don't recognize that name it's the guy that did all the Star Wars scores Jaws and a million other things yeah Kubrick decided to change course he had Rachel Elkind and a Miss Wendy Carlos do the score. Wendy Carlos also did the scores for Clockwork Orange and Tron, of all things. And then those two actually ended up doing like a full electronic score for the film. But then Kubrick changed his mind again, and he ended up discarding most of their score and using mostly like classical music. So they kept some of Wendy and Rachel's score and then just did some of his own shit. I don't know. It was, it was crazy, but it worked out somehow. 
<laughs> well, that's the other thing about this movie that I known from the very beginning, even before seeing this, that Kubrick, uh, he was a psychopath, basically. Well, yes, he was pretty well known for being a hard ass on set, and that's probably putting it pretty lightly. For example, our main lead actress, Shelley Duvall, she was pushed so far on set that she basically was on the edge of like a nervous breakdown. She was completely exhausted. She had hair loss. He basically had the crew be cold and standoffish to her. Apparently to get her in a mindset that he wanted for the character. But still, it's it's behavior that he wouldn't have really gotten away with today. <laughs> Let's oh. put it that way. Not a chance. Well, it's not even just her. It's also what he did to Scatman Carruthers. He made the man cry. Yes, he did. I read something that he only fed Jack Nicholson cheese sandwiches for two weeks because he hated cheese sandwiches or something and he just wanted to keep him agitated the whole time. He apparently was very protective of the child actor in the film who played Jack Nicholson and Shelley Duvall's son, Danny Lloyd, I read something that he told the kid that it wasn't a horror movie. It was like a drama or something to try and shield him away from it. And apparently the actor didn't even know it was a horror movie till years later when he watched a movie as an adult. He was like, oh, <laughs> that's what we were doing? Okay. Oh, so that makes a lot more sense. Oh, so I did mention before we get in the nitty gritty. Unfortunately, there are no Oscar nominations for this film, but there are some Razzie nominations. Because like I said, this movie, when it came out, had some mixed reviews, which I kind of get because the movie is pretty weird. I certainly am glad that as time has gone on, it's been able to be properly appreciated for the art that it is because it really is art. If people watch this and the first time they see it, they think it's like kind of boring and maybe not what they expected. I could understand that because to be perfectly honest, that's how I felt when I first watched it. But after rewatching it a couple times... You really appreciate the incredible cinematography and set design. And it's a journey. It's a fucking journey. And we're going to go on it together. And it's going to be wonderful. So you're saying there's hope for the Emoji Movie? No. <laughs> that in 20 or 25 years, we'll appreciate it as a classic. Yes, as a classic horror movie. That's <laughs> for sure. It's certainly terrifying. Poop, what is it? Tell me true. What happened? I know it was an accident. We all have accidents. You're so soft, Poop. Not too soft, I hope. So, the Razzies. <laughs> the Shining got two Razzie nominations. One for Worst Actress for Shelley Duvall. Okay, that I disagree with. I do too. But she lost to Brooke Shields in Blue Lagoon. That I agree with. And you're going to hate this. Stanley Kubrick was nominated for Worst Director, <laughs> and he lost to Robert Greenwald, who directed Xanadu. <laughs> Which is a film I've never seen. But it's got a rep. Oh, it certainly does. I mean, I would be down to watch it just for the shits and gigs. I guess, sure. <laughs> but 
I mean, who knows? Maybe maybe it'll be a so bad it's good movie in the future on Shoot the Flick. Or maybe we'll just want to blow our brains out. Perhaps. Who who could say? So like I mentioned before, we open on these sweeping shots of mountains and hills and this little tiny car driving up the road. And then we get our very first title card of the film. It's just a black screen with white text and it says the interview and we get introduced to our main character our main squeeze jack torrance played by jack nicholson this was five years post cuckoo's nest and fun fact jack nicholson was kubrick's first choice to play jack torrance but you know just to uh give you a little tease there were some other names in the mix what? Dun, dun, dun. oh my god so Jack arrives at the Overlook Hotel in the Rocky Mountains to be interviewed as the winter caretaker by the manager of the hotel, Mr. Ullman. Mr. Ullman? Ullman. U-L-L-M-A-N. Oh, okay. Not Ullman. <laughs> that would be, yeah, I'd be a little on the nose. <laughs> okay, so throughout this scene, we learn a little bit about Jack and we learn a little bit about the Overlook Hotel. We learned that the hotel is on a Native American burial ground, as it as as you do. Hi, I Stephen guess. King. We learned that Jack is a former teacher who wants to use the solitude of the hotel to write his next, I think, screenplay or his novel, whatever the fuck he's writing. His next masterpiece. Yes. In the book, I'm going to mention some stuff that was in the book throughout our review here because I am quite the bookworm. In the book, Jack is also a, a former teacher, but unlike in the movie, they actually talk about like his teaching career and like what happened so essentially he was a teacher in vermont at like some fancy prep school or something i think and he ended up getting into a physical altercation with one of the students and um, also he was just like a fucking drunk so he ended up getting fired but what i do like about the movie is that you get little hints about the kind of person jack is but you don't get all like the backstory just spoon fed to you. No, no, no. Because no. you don't need to. It's not really necessary. But another thing they learn in this interview scene is that the previous caretaker for the Overlook Hotel, a man by the name of Charles Grady, had a, a bit of an incident the uh, previous uh, year. A, a, a bit, a little bit, a smidge. Mr. Ullman informs Jack that this Grady person killed his family with an axe, chopped them up into little bits, and then shot himself. <laughs> Mr. Ullman kind of explains this to Jack, like, you know, he's explaining the weather report. Like, it's very, like, lackadaisical. And Jack, despite learning all of these horrific, concerning things, when he's offered the job, he takes it. He's like, sure, I'll stay in this creepy fucking hotel. <laughs> For five months. My wife's a true crime nut anyway. It's fine. Yeah, no, it's going to be fun. So meanwhile, Jack's son, Danny, played by Danny Lloyd, and his wife, Wendy, played by Shelley Duvall, are in their little apartment in Boulder. And Danny is actually in the bathroom brushing his teeth 
he's in the mirror and he's talking to his imaginary friend, quote unquote, by the name of Tony. But when he's talking to Tony, first of all, he talks in this really creepy little scratchy voice. You don't want to call him Mrs. Don't. Well, how come you don't want to go? I get don't. Well, let's just wait and see. He's in the bathroom, brushing his teeth, talking to Tony. And you kind of get a sense that there's something up with this imaginary friend, Tony, because Danny is talking to him and he says, Tony, do you think dad's going to get the job? And Tony goes, yeah, he already got it. He's going to call your mom in a minute and tell her that he got the job. And then like five seconds later, you see that happen and you're like, what the fuck? Spooky. Danny's psychic? What? And just to just to hammer it home, Danny is like, oh, tell me why you don't want to go to the hotel. Tell me, tell me, tell me. And then all of a sudden, Danny kind of just like goes into this trance and you see he gets a vision, uh, a premonition of sorts. And we get the first infamous imagery connected with this movie. Danny has a vision of an elevator the elevator doors open and a big old wave of blood rushes out <laughs> through the elevator. And after the scene, we cut to Danny being examined by a doctor. And the doctor's like, he seems fine. You know, he just had a little episode. It's fine. Yeah, kids have it all the time. Kids have seizures all the time, right? Yeah, okay, sure. So the doctor is talking to Wendy trying to get a gauge on Danny's home life and like when he started talking to this imaginary friend because Danny mentions Tony during the conversation with the doctor and Wendy drops a little bit of uh of knowledge there she explains that her husband Jack used to be a teacher in Vermont and they had to move around a lot and when Danny started going to preschool that's when he started talking to his imaginary friend Tony I think she said it got worse when he had his quote unquote injury and the doctor's like, what injury are you talking about? And Wendy explains like, oh, it was no big deal. You know, my husband came home drunk one night and popped my son's shoulder out of his socket. Yeah. He, <laughs> no big deal. <laughs> yeah. Apparently Danny had knocked his papers on the floor and Jack went to grab him and Wendy says, oh, like, you know, you go to grab your kid anyway when they're doing something bad and just pulled too hard and, you know. Yes, but apparently after that incident, Jack promised that he would never drink again and he has been a recovering alcoholic for five months now. After that scene, the Torrance family arrives at the Overlook Hotel and we get the tour scenes of the of the hotel this is a part in the movie where I feel like some people will be like, this is boring. They're just walking around a fucking hotel. I did different rooms. Like, what the fuck? But it's a masterclass in a mood and tone setting because you just get a feeling of coldness and and creepiness and isolation. Even though there are other people in the hotel at this point, it's just that creepy, cold feeling. And B story-wise setting things up for later it's going through different rooms that 
later on in the movie shit's gonna go down in you know what i mean like right now it just seems like a boring old hotel a boring old creepy old place but not so much this is actually one of the things that i thought was actually really impressive there's fade cuts you never know exactly where you are, but it's the same conversation with yeah. these little fades. It's such a good editing detail. Yeah, it definitely, yes. So we get different rooms. We get the, the lobby, obviously. We get the Torrance family's living quarters. We get the ballroom, the hedge maze, the kitchen. We get everything. And when we go to the kitchen, we meet our friend, Mr. Dick Halloran, played by Scatman Crothers. Oh, yeah, baby. And he is the head cook of this establishment. He ends up bringing Wendy and Danny into the kitchen, showing Wendy all the food they got and everything. Dick calls Danny Doc. And Wendy is like, how did you know that Doc is his nickname? Only me and his dad call him that. And he's like, well, I must have heard you say that. I, you know. And then right after that, we get a little surprise for, for Danny you just hear like a, a screeching sound and then Danny is standing there white faced and he's looking at Halloran. I love how they do this because you see him talking to Wendy, but the sound of him talking to Wendy is drowned out and you just hear in his head. How'd you like some ice cream, Doc? Oh my God. It's so he's, creepy. He's in my head. Later on, Halloran is chilling with Danny and he tells him about The Shining. He says him and his grandmother shared this telepathic, psychic type ability. And for a long time, he thought that they were the only ones that had it. They start talking about the hotel. And Halloran basically tells him that the hotel has its own shine. It has its own memories that kind of live in the hotel. He also tells Danny, whatever you do... Stay out of room 237. Do not go in there. Woo! But once you tell me not to... I'm a child, so I must go in there now. Exactly. So, basically, we've established this fucking place is creepy as fuck, and this child is psychic, so everything creepy and scary is gonna be attracted to him like a magnet, essentially. Oh, yeah. So then we get our next title card, and it says, A Month Later. And we establish that Jack is trying to write, but it's not really going anywhere. He's doing a lot of procrastinating. Throwing the ball against the wall. Yeah. And um, Wendy has a conversation with him. And this is like the creepiest fucking conversation, because they're just chatting. And she's like, you know, at first I thought this place was really scary. And Jack is just like... I fell in love with it the second I saw it. It was like I've been here before. It's like I knew what was behind every corner. And it's like, oh boy. We do get another cool kind of infamous shot in here also. We get the first shot of Danny riding his little toy bike around the hotel. It's such a simple shot. Danny is riding his little bike and the camera is following behind him. The utter, like, silence of the hotel is so off-putting. And then when you put Danny's toy bike, the wheels going across the floor, it's very off-putting and eerie. That's the number one word I would probably use to describe this film. It's just eerie. So next title card says Tuesday. We get 
Danny riding on his little bike again. He rides past room 237 and he slowly gets up and he walks over and me and Scott are screaming like, no, get back in that bike. Go away. Bad boy. <laughs> no. <laughs> but he goes up to the door and he can't open it because it's locked. So he just walks away. Then we get a scene with Jack and Wendy. Jack is in the lobby on his little typewriter, click clacking away. And Wendy comes in and she's just being her cheery self. Hi, honey. What you doing? Can I read any of your writing? Like her voice is so like high pitched. It's just very sweet. It's almost like a fake 50s wife kind of talk. You know what I mean? She is talking to Jack and he's just so irritated with her. Like why? And then he goes into this whole tirade where he's like, We're going to make a new rule. Whenever I'm in here, you hear me typing. Whether you don't hear me typing, what the fuck you hear me doing in here when I'm in here, that means that I am working. That means don't come in. How do you think you can handle that? Wendy, when you come into this room while I'm typing, you're breaking my concentration. This is where we get the first shot of the actual maze, right? Yeah, there's a really cool shot of Wendy and Danny kind of going through the maze. And then there's a part where... Jack is inside and there's like a model version of the maze and he's looking down on it and the camera like shoots from the top of it and then it kind of fades into the actual maze. It just looks really cool. It's an amazing shot. Then we skip to Thursday and Danny and Wendy are outside having a snowball fight because now it's the big winter storm has begun. Yes. And you see Jack just staring ever so creepily out the window. And it's so crazy because it's bright outside in the snow. And it's like the light from outside is hitting his face and just making him look so pale. Yeah. And he doesn't say anything. It's just everything is said in that shot with like zero words. It's so crazy. Yeah. It it starts to make you think like, when does Jack actually go crazy? When does he start going down the hill? Well, that's the thing. because, it, And that's why I think it works because it, it is gradual because you see moments with Jack. You know, this guy is kind of like a fucked up dude to begin with. So when he does start kind of losing it, you start to lose where the real Jack is and where like the madness of the Overlook comes in. It's it's just kind of seamless. Then we cut to Saturday. Saturday night. The phone lines have gone out now. And we get a whole scene with Wendy calling out to the local radio tower. This scene kind of made me laugh because it's such a long scene. And... Again, this is one of those parts that, like, if you watch this for the first time, you might think, like, okay, this is boring. Like, what the fuck? This lady... Because she's talking to the guy at the radio tower, and every time they finish the sentence, they say over. 
and it's just like a fucking 10 minute conversation and every time somebody talks they say over and it reminds me of that family guy scene i said i don't want to hang out with you anymore when this is over when this is what you gotta finish your sentence over that's it my sentence is over your sentence is what brian over my sentence is wait a minute i have to say over even if the sentence ends with the word over ends with the word what brian over oh i see the wire you see the wire what over over on top of that we get danny again riding around on his bike in the hotel and we get the first real major vision that he has in the hotel and this is also another pretty infamous scene danny turns a corner down a hallway and at the end of the hallway he sees two little girls in identical blue dresses standing together ever so creepily and (laughs) they just say come play with us danny so these two little girls are supposed to be charles grady's two daughters that he killed with the with the axe danny's just staring at them and then in a split second he sees their bloody corpses and an axe just complete massacre so that's not concerning at all no no not at all you know this is fine we're having a great time at this lavish hotel then we cut to monday and we get a creepy scene between danny and jack and i i think this scene is so good (laughs) because uh danny creeps into the living quarters and he sees jack sitting at the edge of the bed just staring off into space and he's like uh i just came to get my fire truck and jack is like come here son and it's so fucking creepy oh yeah he sits danny in his lap and he's talking to him and he just looks ragged and danny just looks he doesn't want to be there like he's turned his brain off which kind of makes sense because i feel like i mean i'm not a shrink or anything but i feel like a lot of kids that go through abuse and deal with a a violent aggressive alcoholic parent probably would have kind of a shut off moment where they kind of just separate themselves you know what i mean that's what it looked like was happening yeah for a kid who didn't know what type of movie he was in it's actually quite impressive how he like acts with jack it really is. It's weird because Jack is ever so creepy, especially in the scene. Did you not get the vibe, kid? <laughs> like, what? Yeah, because at one point, yes, Jack, he's like, are you going to hurt me or mommy? He goes, who told you that? Did, what, did your mother tell you I hurt you? No, no, I'm never going to hurt you. I love you. I love you. Yeah, and the scene ends with Jack being like, are you having a good time, Danny? And Danny's like, yeah, I guess. <laughs> and Jack's like, good, I want you to have a good time. And it's like, oh. Then we cut to Wednesday. And this is when shit starts getting really real. <laughs> hey, guys, quick break from the main show here. Just wanted to take a minute to shine a light on some other podcasts that Scotty and I really enjoy. Check it out now. Welcome. Hey everyone, I'm Michelle. And I'm Tom. And we are Apocalypse in Review. We're a comedic podcast that rates and reviews movies in the apocalypse genre. We run a synopsis, play some games, and also have commentary from us watching the movie. <gasps> dun dun dun. Ah, uh, he did. If you enjoy movies and lighthearted podcasts, 
come check us out on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks for listening. In a world of utter randomness, one podcast stood out from the bunch. And it was the amazing world of talking shiz. <laughs> Sorry, I had to clear my throat there. Um, yeah, it's just mainly randomness. And focus is it's definitely not being not focused on at all. No. Uh, our podcast is definitely um, no theme at all. It's literally random and talk about literally everything and throwing in random jokes at any given time. Yeah. We're on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts. Hey. So go ahead, tune in. New episodes weekly. And we're international. International. Very, yes. very well. So tune in. Follow yeah. us on Twitter. See you there. First things first, Danny is walking by room 237 again. But this time, the door is unlocked. And Not only is it unlocked, it's wide fucking open. <laughs> and it's calling out to Danny. And Danny, being the little, the little willful child that he is, he goes in there and scene cuts and you're like and it's the sanderson sisters what no sorry (laughs) i put a spell on you (laughs) so then we cut to wendy and she's downstairs in the boiler room doing jack's job yes well interestingly enough let's talk about this for a second because in the book they have a big thing about the boiler at the overlook hotel that's actually one of the parts in the book that's like kind of rambling on forever just talking about this fucking boiler in the hotel because apparently in the book it is supposed to like overheat a lot if you don't check it at a certain time or whatever so during the interview process in the book Ullman says to Jack like hey you got to keep an eye on the boiler and the maintenance guy at the hotel gives them a whole speech about the boiler. It's a whole thing with the fucking boiler. And they don't talk about it at all in the movie, which is great for me. Because it was boring as fuck in the book. But anyway, it's established in the book the same way that the hedge maze is established in this movie. Because, spoiler alert, the hedge maze becomes pretty important towards the end of the film. And the boiler becomes pretty important towards the end of the book but um also the boiler becomes very important in the other movie oh in the miniseries yeah well because the miniseries is based on the book like verbatim i was referring to dr sleep oh yeah and dr sleep the the sequel which by the way we did review on shoot the flick check out our review of dr sleep that is a spoiler free review though so oh yes because we did it when it first came out but I love Dr. Sleep. That was that was a good movie. But yeah, Wendy is in the boiler room tending to the boiler. And she hears Jack screaming. So she runs like a bat out of hell into the lobby. And Jack is having a nightmare. And she wakes him up and he tells her, oh my God, I had the most horrible nightmare. I dreamed that I, that I killed you with Danny. But I didn't just kill you. I cut you up in little pieces. And she's like, uh <laughs> Okay, well don't worry, we're gonna figure this out. Let's let's take you to bed. <laughs> so she starts to like 
take Jack off and take him to bed. But Danny shows up in the lobby and he's kind of in a trance state again. And Wendy's freaked out. She's looking at him and she notices a bruise all along his neck. She's obviously very freaked out. She picks Danny up and she looks over at Jack and she's like, you did it, didn't you? You did it, didn't you? And Jack denies it. But she runs off with Danny thinking that he abused him again. Yeah, this is where you start questioning, like, what's real. Because you're like, wait, when did that, like, did did Jack actually do it? Like, what actually happened? Like, I, I went in and I looked at my phone. I'm like, what actually happened here? Like, did Jack actually do this and just kind of lost his mind? Did Was Danny, like... Was it the hotel? Like, you, you can start questioning, like... You can almost start bringing up the cabin fever argument. Like, is, is this cabin fever? Right, of course. Yeah, they even mentioned that in the at, at one point in the interview scene. They're like, you know, oh, that Charles Grady, he got cabin fever, you know? And it's like, hmm. What I do like about this film is that it very expertly balances the supernatural fuckery with the mental illness fuckery like and you don't you don't know a lot of the time like what really is going on like is jack just fucking crazy or are there ghosties and ghoulies in the hotel like it's i would say it it, it balanced that very well until the very end where it's like okay we tip the scale now but what what I will say at this point, this is when you start getting like the the real like meekness and like fear in Wendy. Her voice starts getting really shrill here and she just starts kind of losing it. But there is a strength in her and, and we'll talk about it. But in the book... The character of Wendy is completely different. She's this like strong-willed, independent, blonde <laughs> gal. But for whatever reason, Kubrick wanted Wendy to be that kind of meek and submissive victim. Which I guess makes sense because, I mean, you're making a horror movie here. Yeah, if you had her be strong and independent, I don't think that works here. But I think... The character of Wendy in this movie is interesting because, yes, obviously she's meek and she's on the surface. You don't see her as a really strong person. But when shit starts hitting the fan, the mama bear in her comes out. And I think that's where the underlying strength in her kind of comes out. Well, yeah, but you also look at like her as a meek character and accepting like with the abuse she... You know, oh, it's fine now. He's been sober for five months. It's all good now. It's fine. It's like she accepts it. And that's kind of works really well here. Like if she's strong and independent, I don't think that character does that. Doesn't accept the abuse and accept Jack to still be there. She would probably leave with Danny. Right, right. So I think you almost have to portray her as the victim because now she's also kind of being abused she's more likely to accept the abuse of Danny as well as herself so after 
Wendy and Danny go off. Jack ends up wandering into the ballroom and sits at the bar. And he meets a ghostly bartender named Lloyd. And this is a pretty infamous scene as well in this movie. Uh, Lloyd serves him some bourbon on the rocks. And uh, Jack complains about his fucking bitch wife. (laughs) Uh is this I think this is I'm not sure if it's this time or the next time at the bar. He calls her a sperm bank? Oh yes, the old sperm bank up there. I think it's this I think it's this scene. Yeah, he calls her he has a problem with his sperm bank and his son is a son of a bitch. Yeah. I love the son of a bitch. I would never hurt him. <laughs> it's like, oh jeez. Well, well, I did one time, but that that was an accident. I, I you know She'll never let me forget it. It's a really we're doing like the funny Jack Nicholson voice, but it actually is a really disconcerting scene. It kind of stops it stops you cold. Yeah, it definitely is. Cuz like now he's seeing shit clear as day. Like we know he's seeing shit and it's not good. No, it definitely isn't good. But I- Sorry, but fun fact about this particular character, Lloyd, he was supposed to be played by Mr. Harry Dean Stanton, but he couldn't because of Alien, (laughs) because this is around the time he did Alien, so. Makes sense. Yeah, but I think that would have been funny. I feel like Harry Dean Stanton is cool as shit. He would have been good in this. Oh yeah, he would have definitely been good in this. So after... Jack has this scene with Lloyd. We get Wendy running into the ballroom with a baseball bat in her hand, crying and being hysterical. And she says to Jack, 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 Danny told me that this crazy woman in room 237 tried to strangle him. There's somebody else in the hotel with us. Like, what the fuck? And Jack is, at first, he's like, are you out of your fucking mind? (laughs) And he's like, what room? And she's like, 237. So he goes up there and he checks it out. And this scene is fucking weird. (laughs) Yeah. So he goes into the bathroom, which is all green. And he is standing there at the doorway. And he sees this beautiful naked woman emerge from the bathtub. Jack just walks right up to her and starts making out with her. And... Then he looks off into the mirror behind him and he sees that this woman that he's making out with is in reality this old, soggy, scabby, gross lady. <laughs> it's a nice, ugly, ghosty lady. Yeah. Um. So the creepy, old, scabby lady chases Jack out of the room and... He shuts the door behind him and walks off and tells Wendy, oh, there's nothing in there. Everything's fine. Everything's just fine. <laughs> there's no war in Ba Sing Se. So how did, uh, so how did Danny get a choke mark on his neck then? Yeah, let's not think about that too hard. Maybe he did it to himself. Who knows? Uh, who cares? Anyway, <laughs> meanwhile, while all this is happening, we check back in with Dick Halloran at his home in Florida and he's just chilling on the bed watching TV and suddenly you hear that screeching sound again that shining sound and Danny is attempting to send out a message to Dick Halloran basically like an SOS like help please shit's getting real over here after that 
message gets sent, Dick starts preparing to fly back to Colorado to help Danny. And throughout the preceding scenes that happen, we get Dick slowly but surely making his way back to the Overlook. Yeah. Remember I said that. (laughs) Dick is on his way. So after this whole debacle with 237, Jack ends up going back to the ballroom. But now this time, it's not just an empty ballroom. With just Lloyd. Right. It's a ballroom filled with people having this little shindig here. Oh, it's a hopping party. Oh, yeah. Jack goes back to the bar and he tries to pay for his drink. And Lloyd is like, oh, no, sir, your money's no good here. And Jack's like, what do you mean? And he's like, oh, orders from the house. And he's like, well, who's, what does that mean? I, I, a man wants to know who's paying for his drink. And Lloyd's like, it's no concern of yours. And it's like, I, I like that little part. It's just like a slight allusion to the fact that Jack has ties to this hotel that maybe he doesn't even know about. They allude to it before in the conversation with Wendy. I just like that little supernatural undertone element. Well, yeah, I just find it funny because then he responds with the, okay. Yeah, he was like, all right, whatever, and (laughs) glug, glug, glug. Uh, (laughs) But then as he's, you know, walking around this party in the ballroom, Jack meets a waiter who identifies himself as Delbert Grady. Hmm, greedy. And he's having a conversation with him. In a red bathroom. Oh, yes. This is another, the other scene. They go into the bathroom together because the waiter ended up, like, he spilled something on Jack. So they go into the bathroom together. And he's, like, cleaning him off. And the bathroom is stark red. And it's, like, odd. Like, it's, like, a piercing fucking, it almost, like, kind of hurts your eyes a little bit. Yeah, it, it's definitely, like, a weird feeling. Yeah. Like I said, this movie is a fucking journey. (laughs) Jack is talking to Grady and he keeps saying to him, he's like, you used to be the caretaker here. And Grady is like, oh, no, sir. You you're the caretaker. You've always been the caretaker. (laughs) And it's like, oh, God, my girls, uh, they didn't care for the overlook at first. One of them actually stole a pack of matches and tried to burn it down. But I corrected them, sir. And when my wife tried to prevent me from doing my duty, I corrected her. You know, your son, he's a little rambunctious too. You might have to correct him and that wife of yours. And Jack is like, oh, okay. (laughs) Essentially. And uh, he ends up leaving the bathroom and he ends up going to the office, disabling the radio and going out to the garage and disabling the snowcat outside, trapping everyone in the hotel. Not concerning at all, because again, this is a lovely hotel, a lovely place to be. We cut to Wendy in the living quarters and she's bugging out. She's pacing back and forth, crying. She's like, okay, we can get out of here on the snowcat and get into town and get Danny to a doctor. And if Jack doesn't want to come with us, then then we'll just have to go on our own. And da 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 da. And she's freaking out. And then all of a sudden Danny is in his room and he starts screaming, Red Ram. 
Red Rum in that creepy fucking Tony voice. Red Rum. And Wendy is trying to like snap him out of it. And he just keeps talking in the Tony voice and he's like, Danny's not here, Mrs. Torrance. Danny won't wake up. It's it's very oh so very creepy. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely it's definitely a creepy thing. He it's a creepy kid acting like it's just creepy all around. But now we're getting down to the n- real nitty gritty here, because uh, our next title card says eight a.m. So we're at the next day now. Wendy goes to talk to Jack. She finds his typewriter and all these pages and pages and pages of of work that he's done. And it all says the same thing, line after line after line after line. All work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. <sighs> so she's going through like these, it seems like hundreds and hundreds of papers, all saying the same thing over and over and over and over and over and over and over. But I'm also impressed with this because they're also, they're not written the same way. Some are in different paragraphs, some are full pages, some oh, are yeah, like different indents. It's crazy, yeah. <laughs> And it leads into another pretty infamous scene from this movie. Jack comes in. Wendy has her baseball bat still. And Jack is being incredibly aggressive and intimidating and mean to her. And slowly but surely, he's backing her up, up towards the main stairway. And you get the scene where Wendy is swinging the bat towards Jack as Jack is threatening her. Wendy, darling, light of my life. I'm not going to hurt you. You didn't let me finish my sentence. I said, I'm not going to hurt you. I'm just going to bash your brains. And eventually, it's a really fucking scary scene. Like, it's not scary in like the oogie boogie type way, but it's like a very disconcerting scene. And eventually, Wendy smashes him over the head with a baseball bat, knocks him out. And she's able to drag him into the food pantry and lock the door. Yeah, she does have a a little bit of an issue with the door. You know, because we, we need a horror movie cliche where the heroine cannot open the door. Because, you know, horror movie. But it's okay, Kubrick. We'll let you, we'll let you slide with this one. After she locks him in the pantry, she goes out. And this is when she realizes that the snow cat is fucked up. So yeah. they're stuck here in this hotel now. Well, yeah... But before she does that, like she, when she locks Jack in there, Jack's like talking to her, trying to fuck with her head more. He's like, "You hurt me real bad." Like, oh yeah, and she she literally just grabs a kitchen knife and fucking leaves him there. She's like, "Fuck this, I'm out." Yeah, yeah, but it's it's still fucking creepy. I did want to mention one thing, because I know we were talking a lot about the the set design before and the production design. There's a a pretty, again, infamous conspiracy theory connected with this film. Apparently, some people believe that there are certain symbols in the film that Kubrick dropped in there as evidence that he was involved with faking the moon landing in 1969. (laughs) The Illuminati. There are apparently several 11s mixed into the film referencing apollo 11 there's a point where danny's sweater he's wearing a a rocket ship sweater and the carpet like 
I'm sure everyone's kind of seen the carpet, know what I'm talking about. There's like an orange carpet throughout a lot of the hallways in the hotel. And it apparently, the design on it, it's shaped like a lunar launch pad. Yeah. So he wants everybody to know. Right, apparently. And also, there was another quote-unquote clue. Apparently, Jack's typewriter is an Adler typewriter. And Adler in German is Eagle, which was the name of the craft that landed on the moon. Okay, we're, we're, we're reaching That's, here. That, that was what I read. That was one of the clues that I read, quote-unquote. Okay, we're really reaching here. We're, we're reaching a little bit, yeah. But um, I just, I find it interesting because there is like, the carpet one makes sense to me kind of because the carpet is so like unique looking. Yeah. And obviously there there is a scene where Danny has a fucking rocket ship sweater on. Yeah. And it's like of all the sweaters. Ooh, who I I don't know. Oh my god. Why not a striped sweater? Because you know, the best time to wear a striped sweater is it's all, all the, the time. time. <laughs> One with a collar, turtleneck. That's the kind. I have a problem. Okay. <laughs> oh god. After all that, we get our next title card, 4 p.m. So some time has passed throughout the day. Jack is still in the pantry. And he apparently hears Delbert Grady through the door of the pantry. And he basically gives him a little pep talk. He's like, you were supposed to correct your wife and your son. You didn't do it. And he's like, give me another chance. And he's and Grady's like, okay, fine. This is your last chance. And you just hear the door unlock. Yeah, this is and where you're like, what is? Wait, is he a ghost? Is he real? Is he in his head? What's happening? Well, this is where I think you can give up the cabin fever argument because, yeah, there's no way he opens the door by himself. But you could possibly make the argument that Wendy was so distraught that she didn't really lock the door all the way because she had trouble with the door getting in so maybe she just didn't lock it right coming out maybe I, you I, could make that argument I don't know if I necessarily would but I'm well, sure you could I, well in a movie where you know people can speak mentally to each other <laughs> nothing's off the table <laughs> Jack is let out of the pantry and meanwhile, Danny is back in living quarters and he is creepily chanting Red Rum, Red Rum, Red Rum over and over. Yeah, this is funny to me because Wendy just went through a whole bunch of shit. Like, and she's fucking asleep. Oh, yeah. Well, she's probably exhausted. <laughs> but, like, your son's kind of going crazy. You locked your husband in the pantry. <laughs> Perfect time. For a nap. Well, okay, but like, what else are you supposed to do? She's, they're trapped. They can't go anywhere. So you might as well have a little snooze. Sure. Fine. I don't know. I don't, I don't know, Scott. I don't know. But Danny, he starts drawing on the bathroom door, Red Rum. And then he just starts like screaming like, really really loud and wakes wendy up and she manages to look into the bedroom mirror and the reflection of danny's drawing on the bathroom door reads out murder 
Because red rum backwards is murder. So clearly, what this all points out to us is Danny, the actor, could not read backwards and had no idea what red rum meant. Well, yeah, it's so weird that, like, apparently, if it's true, that the actor didn't know. I mean, he was a kid. He was, like, six or seven years old. But, like... You're holding a fucking because at one point he's holding the knife, Wendy's kitchen knife, and just like scream like red rum, red rum, and you didn't get any indication that this might be a little bit spooky. <laughs> I don't know, but anyway, at this very creepy moment, Jack decides he's gonna start hacking through the main door of the living quarters with an axe, and Wendy ends up picking up Danny and getting him in the bathroom and they lock themselves in the bathroom she ends up getting Danny outside through the bathroom window she came in through the bathroom window she came in through the bathroom window but she but the window is too small like she can't get out herself so when Jack gets in he starts hacking at the bathroom door and we get that famous famous scene here's Johnny this particular scene took three days to film and they went through not one, not two, not three, not four, but 60 doors <laughs> to get through the scene. So as Jack is hacking at this bathroom door, Wendy is screaming like blood curdling screams. It's actually a really, really well done scene. So it's an amazing scene. Her screaming, holding the knife. Jack just fucking hacking into the door and then suddenly Wendy ends up slashing him in the hand with her kitchen knife and he runs off. So now that we've got full-blown crazy Jack Torrance in the building, I think now would be the best time to go into one of our favorite segments here at Shoot the Flick. The The cast could have been... As I mentioned before, Jack Nicholson was Kubrick's first choice to play Jack Torrance. But there were some other names being batted around. First things first, I have a Mr. Robert De Niro. Okay. Kubrick saw him in Taxi Driver and said that he wasn't crazy enough for this movie. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Which I find kind of funny. We also have, this one's even weirder, I feel like, Robin Williams. I can actually see it. Opposite to De Niro, Kubrick actually saw him in Mork and Mindy and said that he was too crazy for this movie. <laughs> okay. Which I also think yeah. is pretty hilarious. Yeah. The, the before, like... I could not see Robin Williams I could doing s- this. I could see it. I could see him doing this. I could see De Niro before I see him. Oh, see, I see Williams before I see De Niro. That's so... That's funny. That's weird. Okay. I mean, let's just say right off the bat, Nicholson is obviously the premier choice. I Like, I don't think anyone could have did it like him. Um, but we do have quite a few other names that were batted around. Harrison Ford, Chevy Chase, oh boy, James Brolin, John Voight, Martin Sheen, who I fucking love from The West Wing. I can see him doing well in this. Christopher Reeve, 
And uh, last but not least, Leslie Nielsen. That one's the most out of the box. I that think one's I've... super weird too, right? There's always that fine line between comedy and drama. Well, yeah. Who would you rate as your best fit and your worst fit? <laughs> the worst fit's Chevy Chase. Yeah, I would say that. <laughs> as much as like you had Fletch and stuff, I just like, no. I think I would probably agree with you. Uh, yeah. My best fit, other of course, other than Jack, would probably be Robin Williams. I that's, really like Robin Williams. That's I mean I love Robin Williams, but I just I don't know. I don't know if I could see him in this type uh, of role. Leslie Nielsen, I would say maybe too, because I've never seen him in a dramatic role. I've only really only seen him in just straight up goofy ass goofy roles. Yeah, well, airplane. So that's all yeah. I really know of him. But I would I would say De Niro probably out of the alternative choices we have here it's probably the best fit you're talking to me well, who the hell else are you talking you're talking to me well i'm the only one here i mean the fact that there were so many names batted around definitely i i think it lets you know that the role of jack torrance was taken pretty seriously because it it, it needed to fit a very certain box you know yeah but I, I think they did a great job. There's no performances in here. I mean, really, the main four performances are Jack Nicholson, Shelley Duvall, Danny Lloyd, and Scatman Crothers. And I feel like they all do a great job. Yeah, they do. There's there's nobody I would be like, you know, that person should be taken out. You know, they just don't fit into this fucking movie. So that was Cass Kudabin. All right, so back to this fucking crazy ass story. So we've we've had our here's Johnny scene. He's run off to go search for Danny now, and as he's skulking around, we hear Dick Halloran arrive at the Overlook Hotel. Finally, and he he's shouting through the hallways, "Hello, is anybody there?" Which bugs the living shit out of me, because. You cle- clearly you and Danny can communicate over fucking miles. Yeah, and you know something is wrong. So like maybe be a little more discreet. <laughs> like just be like, "Yo Danny, I'm here in my head. What the fuck is going on?" Right. And Danny could be like, "Yo, dad's gone crazy." <laughs> He's got an axe. Oh boy. You know, pay attention to your corners. So I want you guys listening to this to remember what I mentioned before about how Dick Halloran had spent the last half hour of this movie on a fucking trek of treks getting to the Overlook Hotel, building up this moment to where he finally arrives to like, you think, save the day, right? And... You think that's what's going to happen, right? Donald supported the invasion of Iraq. Wrong. That is absolutely proved over and over again. Wrong. Within five minutes, Halloran turns a corner and Jack just fucking comes out of nowhere screaming like, ah, with the axe and barrels the axe right into Dick Halloran's chest, killing him. 
and it's like huh <laughs> and like i get it i'm i'm assuming that it was like a purposeful subversion from all the bullshit that he went through getting to the hotel and then to just die within five minutes but it's like it kind of throws you off as the audience you're like what the fuck we went through all that for this and in the book Halloran is attacked by Jack but he actually doesn't die that was a choice that Kubrick made for the movie but he does come back in Doctor Sleep so that's good when Dick is killed, Danny feels it. He he senses it. He sees it in his mind's eye and he screams from wherever he's hiding in the hotel and his father hears him. So he immediately starts chasing after him and Jack ends up chasing Danny into the hedge maze, which is all snowy and dark and treacherous. And while this is going on, Wendy is trying to find them in the hotel we get her passing a room where a bear is giving fellatio to a man (laughs) it's a it's not an actual bear it's a guy in a bear suit but yeah like the it's in a music video what music video is it in the kill i think the 30 seconds to mars video oh is that's uh what's his name's band right jared leto Yeah. yeah oh jared leto (laughs) it's fucking weird and it's interesting and it's it's fucked anyway but yeah wendy consistently is just getting more and more freaked out she runs into several ghosts she finds dick's fucking dead body in the lobby (laughs) and then she runs into the elevator that danny had a vision of in the beginning of the movie and she sees it firsthand the elevator opening and blood rushing out in a torrential like wave and it's it's fucking nuts and she's just slowly but surely getting more horrified by everything that's happening yeah i would be too uh so now we get back into the hedge maze where jack is chasing danny yes so danny has is running ahead of jack and jack's screaming like danny danny so Danny gets far enough ahead where he's like, okay, what if I double back into while stepping into my footprints and like dive to the side behind the bushes and Jack finally catches up to uh, the end of the trail that Danny has left because he stepped through his footprints and hid. And he's just like, oh. And he just keeps going into deeper and deeper into the maze. But since Danny also kind of knows slightly his way around the maze and now can follow his tracks back, Danny gets out. Jack is now lost into the maze. Yes, and uh, Danny runs into Wendy's arms and they end up escaping the Overlook Hotel in Dick Halloran's Snowcat. The next scene we cut to is Jack frozen to death in the maze and it's like the fucking starkest cut to him just frozen in the maze his head is sticking out from the snow and it's just covered in ice and oh it's just the look on his face is in the score in that moment it just like barrels out it's so fucking oh one of the biggest ways that the book differs from the movie is the ending in the book jack 
does die, but he doesn't get frozen in the in the hedge maze. Actually, the hedge maze doesn't even exist in the book at all. In reality, he is blown up in the boiler room because he was too busy being crazy in the book and he forgot to check the boiler. So it just blows up and t- takes the whole house up. But there are, like I said, a lot of differences between the book and the movie. There are no little girl twins in the book. No bleeding elevator in the book. The all work and no play stuff, not in the book. Also, like we mentioned, Halloran actually lives in the book. uh, And escapes with Wendy and, and Danny. So, obviously, there are liberties that are taken when you make a book into a movie. A lot of times, though, it'll just be like, oh, we cut this thing out for time or such and such like that. But what I do appreciate is that Kubrick took inspiration from this book, but also he expanded it and made it his own. Kubrick's original ending for the film was, if you can believe it, even darker than the one we got. (laughs) Uh, Apparently, the original ending that Kubrick wrote was... Wendy kills Jack. Halloran gets possessed by the ghost from the hotel and he attempts to kill Danny with an axe. Wendy ends up killing Halloran too and escapes with Danny. (laughs) So it's even more fucking batshit. But I I guess uh, they ended up scaling back on that a little bit. (laughs) Although I feel like that would have been cool. That would have made that would have brought Wendy's character to even an even higher level of strength, like mama bear strength, because like I said before, there is this meekness and, you know, paralyzing fear in her. And, but also despite the fact that she's has all this fear and it's just dripping out of her, she still is able to, push through it all and do everything she can to protect her child and when she's even when she's in the bathroom after Jack leaves she's like freaking out for a good like 30 seconds and then she pulls it together and she's like okay I gotta find my kid and she goes out there and you know even though she's freaking out so despite the fact that yeah she's a blubbering mess there is still a a strength about her there is Uh, I don't know I I like this ending I you know, I feel- yeah, this ending works. I'm cool with it, which is just a faraway zoom on this wall. And over this scene, they're playing the music from the ballroom party. It's like old timey, like 1920s music. And the camera zooms in on this photo wall. And one of the photos is of a party that took place at the Overlook Hotel in 1921. And it's a big group of people living it up, having a ball. And right dead center in the middle of the picture is Jack Torrance smiling ear to ear. Fade to black. And that's it. That's the end of the movie. <laughs> so I, I've, this scene has been dissected by everyone and anyone that has seen this movie about what it means. And like, oh, was Jack a ghost? Or like, was he in a past life? I don't know. I have no idea what it really means. I just think it's really cool and ominous. And it, again, alludes to the stuff that they alluded to a couple times earlier in the movie, that like Jack had a connection to the hotel all along. And yeah, I, I, it's, it's just creepy. I, I just, I take it as the hotel has absorbed Jack into it. 
that's another way to take it as well. I, I like that you can interpret it multiple different ways and that it's just generally ominous and creepy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's like the perfect end to the movie. Yeah, it definitely is. So that was The Shining. Yes. So, Scott, would you like to tell us how you have decided to rate this movie on Letterboxd? So I have rated The Shining a five-star movie. Really? Yes. Wow. Okay. I, I, I wasn't expecting that. I had a lot. I had a good time with this movie. I actually really, I dug the atmosphere. I dug the disorientation. Everybody did their parts really well. It's actually pretty damn fucking great. It really is a, a, an incredible movie. I think it is one of those movies that you do have to watch multiple times. I have it as a four and a half out of five. I don't have it as a five out of five because for me, there are some times where the pacing, even though most of the time it does work, there are times where like it, it drags a little too much for me. But overall, it's an incredible film. So I'm I'm so glad that I showed you this now that you have a another film that you love under your belt. Yeah, I definitely do love this. It was it was really great. I feel like all all the movies we've watched so far for our shoot the flick spooky October here, they've all been very unique. And that doesn't end next week. In their genre, yeah. Because <laughs> next week Scott's going to show me a movie that again people are going to want to bash me over the head with a baseball bat when they find out that I haven't watched this movie. I'm excited to watch it. We'll get there next week. But until then, this has been Shoot the Flick, an official Paradoja podcast, and I'm Frankie Sparks. And I'm Scott Eisenberg. Make sure you check us out on Instagram and Twitter at Shoot the Flick and check out our weekly episodes every single Wednesday on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and iHeartRadio and pretty much anywhere else you can find a podcast. And make sure you come back next week for our super duper spooky adventure. Scatman, take us out. Everybody wants to be a cat.